Good morning, Crossroads. How we doing? How many of you are free? You feel free this morning? Free indeed. Children of God, sons and daughters. Our freedom found in the fact that Christ died for us, rose again, and brought us into the family, brought us into the fold, brought us into the body to be a part of a free people, a free people for his glory. If you would take your Bibles out with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's one of the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 812, Matthew chapter 7, page 812. And as always, if you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church. You want to make sure that every person has a copy of God's Word. God has spoken. You can know Him. We're going to walk right through a text this morning. We're not trying to give man's ideas. We're trying to understand God's ideal for us. As you turn there, I, I want to take a moment to give a quick update as you know, a few weeks ago, we launched a mini campaign in the midst of a bigger campaign. Uh, a couple years ago, we launched our Vision 2020 campaign, and that campaign had three key initiatives. The first one was to put a city center in our downtown area here in Mansfield. The second part of that was mortgage elimination. We want to eliminate the mortgage of this property. And then thirdly, to put a campus wherever God would lead us. We have done two out of those three. We have our city center functioning, doing well, ministry happening, uh, just, man, constant things, stories being written of changed lives, encouraged people. It's amazing what God is doing through our city center. So appreciate our team and all of you that, that have made a step to serve there. Uh, and then we, we put a campus in Shelby. We didn't know exactly where that would be, and God provided an opportunity through Family Life Counseling, and they invited us in together to serve together in a building there in Shelby, and our campus is going strong there. God is doing some amazing things. Pastor Josh, our campus pastor, is doing a phenomenal job, and we're thankful for the ministry there in Shelby. And then we're working toward our mortgage elimination. We are right now making extra payments on our principal. And by the end of this year, we will have a big dance party. Woo. Right? Because, uh, because we're going to pay this off and we're on track to do that. And uh, that's how we celebrate here. We're going to burn that note. We're going to have a dance party. We're talking even possibly fireworks. Like we're going to celebrate paying off this debt that will free us up greatly to do ministry across this region and around the world. Well, if you remember, uh, in the beginning of the year, we shared with you that God had laid on our lap an opportunity in, in Lexington. We, we didn't look for it. We weren't anticipating it. But God opened a door for us to be able to put a campus in Lexington. It is our third largest location of people that, uh, that draw there, that come from there. And so we thought another great opportunity to reach into another community to help neighbors reach their neighborhoods. Well, as we began to have conversations, we realized we really don't have any money to do that. And so I talked with our executive pastor, Pastor Wendell, and he was like, Dave, listen, every dollar is being wrapped up of our campaign, wrapped up in what we said we were going to do. So what are we going to do? And I said, well, man, I just, man, I'm a little hesitant to go back to the well of people and ask for more money. And in the end, we all agree that that's exactly what we have to do is come and say, this is the need. And if we don't have it, we'll just wait. Uh, God has given us that place. And so we came to you three weeks ago, and we said, we need $150,000 on top of the campaign to be able to meet the need of a Lexington campus. And uh, if you remember, we had a dinner with a few key influencers, and those key influencers actually committed $50,000. And we had one family that committed a matching gift 
for our church of $50,000. So three weeks ago, we came to you and said, we have $100,000 already committed. One of them is a $50,000 matching gift. If the rest of the church can help provide, we'll meet the $150,000. Well, I'm pleased to announce this past week we sent an email out that we were $5,000 short. Today, we are at 100%, $150,000 that has been raised toward our more campaign. So we're preparing, we're launching in the fall our Lexington campus, all the work's being done there. God is doing more. And he is expecting more from us. And so we, are in obedience, are responding to the more that God wants to do in and through us. And we are excited about what God is going to do there in Lexington, as he's doing in Shelby and here at Park Avenue. So we're excited. Thank you for your faithfulness. I am blown away. Uh, you know, I, I got to be honest, as we started talking about this, I was hesitant. I was like, man, I just, man, go back to the well and you run the well dry eventually. I don't know, man, we've given all, Already with our 2020 vision campaign, we have enough. And the team was confident. They said, you know what, Dave? Our church will raise, rise to the occasion. And I was like, are you sure? And i got to be honest, I, I'm usually the one saying, let's go. And they were the ones, Dave, let's go. And, uh, and you guys, again, blow it out of the water. But can I tell you what I love most? It's not about $150,000 or not. That's a lot of money. But it's not about that. What I love about our church is that we believe in the mission and vision to go reach those who do not know the Lord, to go make disciples of all nations. I love the fact that our church are, is about reaching out and making a difference in the neighborhoods throughout this region of not being settled and safe and secure in who we are now, but dreaming about what we can become in the future for the next generation. I'm thankful for a church that dreams together about that, that believes that to be true. In fact, I wanna tell you about a conversation I had recently I had someone outside of Crossroads, I had lunch with them, and, and I, wanna, I wanna quote you a line, I asked their permission to share this, and they were being dead serious. They said, Dave, what are you guys trying to do over there at Crossroads? Like, what are you really trying to do? And then he said this, I'm gonna quote him. He said, are you guys trying, trying for world domination? <laughs> now he was dead serious, and it was a bit sarcastic, but it was also serious. And I gotta be honest, I was taken back by that. I didn't know how to answer that at first, so I, I kinda just remained silent. I'm like, man, what is he really getting at? What does that mean, world domination? And as I thought about it, you know what I said? I responded. I said, yes. We are trying to have world domination. If we believe that we have the greatest message in the history of the planet, that God of the universe came to earth, went to a cross for us, walked out of a grave for us, ascended to heaven for us, and now gives life through his name. If we have that message, then why would we not want world domination? Why would we not want the world to know that truth? And so I looked at this guy and I said, you know, actually, now that you said it, you're right. We're looking for world domination. We're looking to take over the world. Now that's funny to say, but I actually meant it. And can I tell you, I believe this. At least as long as I give breath. I, as a church, and I believe you're, you're there, we will not stop. We will not give up until there is no longer lost people destined for eternity in hell. We will not stop until the over 100,000 people in our region who are yet without a church, yet without a Christ, that they need to have maximum opportunity to know the person of Christ that you and I know. 
until there are no more unreached people groups in the world in places like Cambodia and Nepal and the Philippines who have not heard the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. When 11 a.m. is no longer the most segregated hour on Sunday uh, in America, then we'll stop. When, when children wake up and, and instead of thinking about what they're going to do for the day or how they're going to get through the day or what they're going to eat for the day, until they wake up and have a hope and a purpose that God has a plan for them and that God has a great plan to transform their lives and use them for his glory, when there are no more orphans in our community, then we can give up. But we will not give up. No, until the glory of God covers this earth like the clouds cover the sky, we are called by Christ to leverage everything that we are and everything that we have to see the greater work of the gospel to have its way throughout our region and around this world. And so that's the church that we are. That's the church that we are. That's, that's a declaration that I'm making to say, you know what, that's the church that we are. We will not stop. We will not stop. World domination, maybe with humility and obviously we can't do that alone church the church body around the world working together uh, we see that happening in our community already of God, God just bringing churches together to say let's work for the cause of the gospel together and so we're thankful thank you for being that church to dream to, to think deeply to go after what God has called us to do as a church let's dive in this morning Matthew chapter 7 we're in a series through this Sermon on the Mount, the, the inaugural address, the first message of Jesus as he begins his ministry. As Jesus looked at the religious community, specifically the Jewish community around him, he was appalled. He was appalled because what he saw in the religious community of the Jews, Jesus obviously came to the Jews first, and he came to the Jewish people being a Jew himself. He saw the community of faith and he realized they were far from God's original design. What he found was a formulized religion, a cultural religion, a religion that, that had a veneer that looked powerful and mighty and good, but was hiding major problems. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he goes right after the reality of the issue, and that was the heart. This Sermon on the Mount has really been about coming after our hearts, that Jesus comes after our hearts, not just out of religious duty, not just to get us to do certain things, but because when he has his, our hearts, then those things follow, and so he comes. And as we've been reading the Sermon on the Mount, it should give us two feelings. It should give us a feeling of inadequacy, and it should give us a feeling of motivation. It should cause us to feel like, I can't do it, and then we turn to Christ and say, I need you. And then it motivates us to live in this kingdom principled way. Now, if you've been here for this series, and, and if I could summarize it in one statement, if I could summarize it in kind of a synopsis that you could take, this is what the Sermon on the Mount really has been about. The Sermon on the Mount has been about that right actions with, without right motives is disobedience. It's not really obedience. We could have right actions and yet not have the right motive, and we're not actually obeying God. On the second side of that, we can have right motives without right actions, and all we will then live is a life of apathy. We'll do nothing. We, we believe it, we'll, we'll hold to it, but we actually don't do anything. And so Jesus is coming out of the heart and saying, listen, if you get who I am, if you know what I've done for you, that it's not only right actions, those right actions are stirred and spurned by right motive. You get who I am, you know what I can do through you, and now you allow it to happen in your life. Now, as we've been journeying, We've seen that he's addressed these difficult topics. 
He says things like, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say, don't have anger in your heart. You've heard it said, don't have sexual morality. He says, I, don't, he says, I, I say, don't even lust. He talks about money and worry and how to give and how to pray and how to fast. And now he's going to turn to talk about how we deal with people, with others. How does this intersect with other people's lives? So this morning, we're going to actually look at probably one of the most misquoted verses in the entire New Testament. Certainly the most misquoted verse in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll hear it whether you're a Christian or not. You've heard this verse quoted sometime in some form, in some fashion in your life. I remember hearing this vividly one moment I, back in my college days early on. Uh, right around the time I got married, and then after I got married, I worked as I was going to college at Blockbuster Video. Anybody remember Blockbuster Videos? Now, if you're young out there, we used to have to go rent movies at a store. And so you go rent them, and some of them were two bucks, and some of them were four bucks, depending on how soon they came out and if they were any good. And so I actually worked at Blockbuster Video, and I worked my way up into an assistant manager role. I had some lead roles in opening and closing. And the reason I love Blockbuster is because they were open until like 1 a.m., and so I could get done class and go to work and work until 1 a.m., and, and it was an easy way to get around the schedule. I actually did that actually when we first got married as well, Alistair and I, and I worked at Blockbuster Video. Now, what's interesting about Blockbuster Video is they didn't have cameras throughout their store like many stores do today. What they had is behind the wall where the movies were, the wall of the back of the store, there would be areas where there would what looked like mirrors. But those mirrors were actually one-way glass. And so you could see out of the back to the customers. And so every once in a while there would be a suspicious person. And so you would go to the back and you would look out at whoever was shopping just to make sure they're doing okay. And so there would be periodic times where we would check on shoppers if there was some suspicion. Well, I remember one night, it was about 10 p.m., I was there with two other workers, and there was a group of about five people that came in. They were between the, the ages of around 19 to 23, and they come walking in together all loud and rambunctious, and it's 10 p.m., it was Friday night, it was time for a movie, no big deal. And so here they are coming into the store. The problem was, what they did was very interesting. About four of them went off by themselves and then asked one of the workers to help them, and one guy kind of went by himself down a couple aisles. Now that was suspicious to me. And so I decided to make my way to the back and just see what was going to take place. So I went back and looked out of the glasses, out of these, this, this mirror, and began to look at what this guy was doing down the aisles. And I followed him. So he's down one aisle. He's in the action movie section. And he's looking at movies. And all of a sudden he looks around as if we had cameras. And he takes a movie and he stuffs it in his pants. I was like, well, this is kind of odd. Uh, he takes a second movie, goes to another aisle over, takes a second movie, stuffs it in his pants. He goes to a third aisle, takes a, a movie, and he stuffs it inside of his coat. Now, at this point, I realize that we have a thief. We have someone who's attempting to steal some DVDs. And so I call the police and say, listen, we have a potential theft. Uh, and by the way, if you're in, in, the, uh, in a business like that, you, you know that you really can't accuse a person until they walk out of the store, until they at least get past the checkout counter. Why? Because there is potential that he was going to come out of the counter and pay for those three movies. There is potential that he had nothing to carry them in, and so he had to stick them down his pants. <laughs> so I told the police that. I said, hey, we kind of know this guy's sticking them down his pants. Like, he's stealing these. And so he comes up to the counter. The, the other four gather around with him, and they do rent one movie. I know he has three. I watched him take them. 
And so as he gets to the doorway, as he walks out the door, I grab his shoulder and I give him a little squeeze just to let him know I'm in charge. Give him a little squeeze, nothing unbearable, but just a little squeeze. And I say, hey, sir, you need to come back in with me if you could. At that point, the police pulled up. We take him back into a room. And I say to him, I said, listen, buddy, I don't know why you're doing this, but I watched you steal three movies. Like, why would you need to steal? Isn't there something better for your life than being a thief? And this is what he said. I'm going to quote him verbatim. He said, you can't judge me. And I, I was like, taken back by that, and I thought, you've got two movies in your pants, and you've got one in your coat pocket. Like, I'm not judging you at this point. And he says it again. You can't judge me. And I said, well, well here's the deal. Return the movies. In fact, I don't want the ones back in your pants. You can keep those for all I care. Uh, but I, I want you to know you're, you're a thief. You stole. You can't judge me. He told the police the same thing. How many of you have ever heard someone say, you can't judge me or don't be my judge? Anybody ever heard that before? If you lived any time, you've had to have heard that. Somebody has said that to you at some point in some way, in some fashion. Here is the text where that concept comes from. Here is the quote that Jesus gives that people quote in our culture today. Take a look with me. Uh, what it says, J Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Here we find Jesus making this bold statement, this declaration, this command. It's an imperative. Do not judge. And in our culture, this is the way we view this truth that you and I are not supposed to or allowed to judge. In fact, I, I found this interesting. There's an article I was reading recently. It was a, a major poll taken across the U.S. And this poll was, was taken uh, with people between the ages of 18 and 40. And they asked this question. They said, what do you consider America's greatest virtue? Or what do you consider the highest virtue in our country? Now, you would think, 18 to 40-year-olds, you would think they would, they would be uh, uh, smart enough, right? We're, we should be smart enough to be able to know. Well, how about kindness or politeness, generosity, right? We could have picked anything. Well, this poll, 18 to 40-year-olds, here's what they came back with. 18 to 40-year-olds came back with the answer, a substantial poll came back that the number one virtue in our country is autonomy. What does that mean? Autonomy is the idea that no one can tell me how to live. I'm on my own. I don't need you. You can't tell me how to live. I live the way I want to live, and no one can tell me otherwise. That's what autonomy is. But what shocked me wasn't that autonomy was number one. That didn't shock me. What shocked me was what was number two. I would never have guessed it. Number two in this poll was tolerance. So they said, I want autonomy, but I also believe that we're supposed to be tolerant. T tolerance, by definition, is the ability to allow others to have a belief, a thought, an idea, or behavior that is different than my own. Now, if you've lived anywhere in life, you realize these two things don't meet, do they? 
Like, how do you be autonomous and say my way is the right way and at the same time be tolerant of somebody else who has a differing viewpoint? So here's what we've done. In our culture today, we have, we have changed the definition of tolerance to not mean we can have two opposing views, but tolerance now means that you have to approve and agree with my view. So we change the definition of tolerance to say you have to accept what I think is right, you have to approve of my view. Anything outside of approval is considered judgmental. So we have a culture that says you can't judge me. Why? Because anything outside of approval is considered judgmental. Now this is very tough when it comes to Christianity. What does it look like then to stand firm in the faith when there's a world that says we're not supposed to judge? Notice here, Jesus says it, do not judge. But don't miss verse 6. Don't miss what Jesus actually said. Go down to verse 6. Notice what he says. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw pearls before pigs. What is Jesus talking about there? Is he talking about dogs and pigs? He's actually talking about people. So Jesus says, do not judge. And then five verses later, he says, but watch out for those dogs and pigs. Later on, he's going to call the Pharisees a brood of vipers. In Galatians, Paul is going to call the Judaizers. He's going to call them dogs. All throughout the Bible, we see this idea that we do judge. The point is not that we do not judge. The point is that we do not judge like the world judges. That's point one. As we flow through this, number one, Christians don't judge in the same way as the culture. Christians don't judge in the same way as the culture. When Jesus says judge not, he's not saying we never judge, he's saying we don't judge the way everybody else judges. We're gonna see this developed in a second as we read through this. We don't judge in the same way the rest of the culture judge. Now, this word that he uses for judge is a very interesting word. There's multiple words you could use. He uses this generic word, the word crino. Uh, crino, or crino is, is this idea of setting someone apart for judgment or, or having them step aside kind of pulling back someone and saying, I want to I judge you. This is not always negative. This is sometimes positive, even in the Bible. Why? Because we all judge. We judge people constantly. You probably made a judgment call today in what you were going to wear. You made a judgment call today in where you're going to park. You made a judgment call to come here today. By the way, we judge, right? You take your kids out for a walk. You look both ways when you cross the street. That's a judgment call. We have court systems that have judges in them. So we constantly live in a culture of judgment. Jesus knows this. In fact, I, I love my, my family's been here this week from Maryland visiting my sisters, my mom, my brother-in-law, and uh, we were reminiscing about some of the vacations we would take as kids. And, and my family, all the family would get together and we would gather in a town called Ocean City, Maryland. It's right on the Atlantic, uh, Atlantic coast. It's a beach. It has six to seven miles of boardwalk. It's a huge tourist site there. And uh, what, what I love about the place, I remember as a youth, my nephew and I, we would go after, kind of after hours, and we would go hang out on the boardwalk. And what we would do is we would people watch. It was amazing to watch people after 10 p.m. on a boardwalk. You're talking about crazy people. I mean, people losing their minds. People who started way too early drinking, and now it's 10 p.m., and they probably should give up, but they keep going. I mean, you see things and hear things and watch things that you never could imagine. And we would talk about that. We would judge people by watching them on the boardwalk at night. This idea is generic. God knows that we judge people. The question is, how do we judge people? Remember, Jesus is confronting these, he's confronting his disciples with this truth 
with the mindset of the Pharisees in hand. Remember the Pharisees, they judged based upon religious duty, not by heart. And so Jesus is confronting this in his conversation. Now, in our culture today, how do people judge? How does our culture judge? I want to give you four ways our culture judges. First of all, we judge by appearance. Right? First impressions matter. We judge by appearance, what people wear, what they look like. We determine people's character by how they look before we ever talk to them. By the way, this is very, very important. This is the heart of racism. Right? Racism is we see someone and we make a judgment call on them based upon what they look like. Well, those people and that person and these folks, right? And we begin to make judgment calls. Jesus is saying, do not judge like that. Do not judge based upon appearance. Secondly, we, we judge based upon morality. Now, clearly, we are to judge morality. We're going to see that in a moment, especially in the brothers and sisters of Christ. But think about morality in a world of autonomy and tolerance. Well, if we want to be autonomous and we want to be tolerant, then what happens? Or approved or accepted, what happens? Well, morality then is whatever you want it to be. Whatever you hope it to be. Morality is defined by what you think, not about what actually is true. There's no standard then. And so morality becomes a way of judging people based upon what we think is true. No standard, it's what you think and what I think, and it may contradict, and someone's going to win that battle. And so we judge morality based upon what I think. Socially, we judge socially. We judge somebody and how they interact with people. We judge extroverts as renegades. We judge introverts as, as lacking social skills, don't we? We judge people based upon their social ability. In our culture, by the way, this also overflows into the political world. If you are a Democrat or you are a Republican or you're independent, we begin to judge based upon those social realities, irregardless of the motive, irregardless of the heart behind it. We judge based upon social issues. And then we judge based upon competence. Does someone have the intelligence, the skillfulness, and the confidence to actually do something in their life? And we begin to judge people based upon their ability to accomplish for us instead of judging them based upon who they really are. Now, if this is true, what happens? Follow this. Here's the culture. If we judge in this way, who becomes the ultimate judge of all things? I do. You do. We become... The ultimate judge of all things. So what happens is we're able to pronounce an unfavorable opinion upon everybody. We're able to say, well, I don't like that about this person. I don't like the way they looked at me. I don't like the way they talk. I don't like their accent. I don't like the way they look. I don't like their haircut. I don't like they don't have hair. Just kidding. More face to love, right? More face to love. I don't like what they do. I don't like their job. Right? We start to judge, and we become, ultimately, we play God. We play God, and what we do is we judge for condemnation, not for evaluation. That's what Jesus is saying here, is do not judge. Why? Because we do not judge for condemnation. We do not judge in the way of the culture. And by the way, you know when we judge this way, you know what ensues then? What ensues are nasty tones, condescending looks, condemning words. All of a sudden, assumption begins to reign. Gossip begins to spill out. The root of bitterness takes root in our hearts. The lack of forgiveness to be, becomes our definition. And we begin to cut people off instead of bringing them in. And can I just get real, real honest here for a moment? Not that I'm never honest, but this is real honesty. You know what I notice in our culture? Here in North Central Ohio... The way we gossip and assume things, here's how we do it. 
Um, and I came from the East Coast. And the East Coast, if you've met people from the East Coast, you know they just state it. They don't care. What they do is they state it to your face, then they go build people against you. That's gossip. Here, we do it differently. Here's what we do. is we go build a consensus first. We find people who will agree with us. We share our opinion with them. And then we go to the person we have an issue with and we say to them, hey, some people said this about you. I've seen it a dozen times, more than that. Where what happens is someone has an opinion. Instead of going to that person and sharing their opinion or judging them rightly, what they do is they build a consensus. Then they go to them and they don't take claim of the consensus. They actually blame everybody else for what's been said. And this is gossip. It ends up tearing down, as we're going to see in a moment, instead of building up. So what Jesus does here is he gives some guidelines to how we judge. You might say, wait a minute, Dave, how do we judge and love at the same time? We do this all the time, don't we? We love our kids and we make judgment calls based upon the love we have for our kids. We judge ourselves and love ourselves at the same time. So how do we do it? Jesus gives us guidelines as to how we ought to judge. I want to look at these. Number two, judge others by judging yourself first. Judge others by starting with yourself. Don't become more enraged over someone else's sin than you are embarrassed by your own. Now I want you to see what Jesus says here. Verse two, he says, judge not that you be not judged. Verse two, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. He starts off and he says, listen, when you judge, make sure you start with yourself. Why? Because the judgment you give is going to come back to you. There is a spiritual boomerang that happens when we judge. He doesn't say don't judge. He says don't judge the way of the world. And when you do judge, make sure you're aware that it's going to come back to you. This comes back to who you are. So he, he, he grabs this idea and he says, remember, there's going to be a day when you're going to be judged. Then he says, what is measured will become measured back to you. Now in our day, we, we don't really use measurements in the way of the first century. Of course, we measure things like flour and sugar and recipes, and we measure walls and floors, and, and we measure things. But we don't measure in the way they did in the first century. In the first century, measurements were a way of finances. It was a way that the market ran. In other words, if you wanted to buy something and you didn't have any money, you could measure something out and make a trade. There was, there was bartering that happened. That's true early in, in the U.S. history. There was bartering, a bartering system. That's the way the first century was. And so you would go to the market and say, hey, I've got this, this, this thing of flour, and I measured it out. Could I trade for what I need, a stick of butter or whatever? They had this bartering system. So what would happen is they would take this, this bartering system, and they would begin to manipulate it. And they would change the scale a little bit. They would change the amount. And they would change the labels and say, oh, this is a pint, when really it's a quart. And they would begin to take advantage of other people. And so it became a big issue in the marketplace. You read about this actually in the New Testament. It talks about this issue that took place in many marketplaces where people cheated one another. Jesus himself turned over tables because people were being cheated of the sacrifice. They took advantage of the bartering system. He says here, he says, remember when you measure it out, that same measurement's going to come back. You can't hide the measurement of the judgment. It's going to come right back to you in the same way. You, you, will, you will taste your own medicine. By the way, when I read this, I can't help but to think, I'm a baseball fan, play baseball. I, I can't help but to think of a story about a, a gentleman named Arthur Pinelli. His actual nickname was Babe Pinelli. 
He was a baseball player who became a, a, an umpire, Major League umpire. And the story is told that he was umpiring at Yankee Stadium when Babe Ruth played. And on that specific day, Babe Ruth came up to the plate uh, with people on base and a, an opportunity for him to get some RBIs and win this game. And he comes out, and Babe Pinelli calls three strikes, called strikes, meaning Babe Ruth never swung the bat, three strikes against Babe Ruth, and he struck out, and they ended the game. At that moment, 40,000 fans at Yankee Stadium begin to boo Babe Pinelli, as you can expect. So the story is told that Babe Ruth, before he walks to the dugout, leans back to Babe Pinelli and says, you hear those boos? Those 40,000 people know that you got the wrong call. Their opinion is, along with mine, that you got the wrong call on this, buddy. And history tells us that Babe Pinelli actually responds, and here's his line. He says, maybe so, babe, but mine is the only opinion that counts. <laughs> That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, when you judge, make sure you realize that ultimately the opinion that counts is mine. Jesus here, the ultimate judge, is making a statement to say it's going to come back. Now, again, he's not prohibiting judgment. He's starting judgment with you and I. Now, watch where he goes. He now turns to a humorous, a, a, a hilarious illustration of this. Take a look. Verse 3. Why do you see the speck? By the way, the word speck there literally means sawdust or a piece of straw. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite? I love this word, by the way, hypocrite. It's the word hypocrites in Greek, and it, it literally was an actor on a stage. You're acting on a stage. You're, you're an actor. You're a hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he gives this humorous illustration of planks and splinters. And he says, make sure that you're taking the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's. What he's getting at is the heart of hypocrisy. He's saying there's a standard of judgment, but where is the integrity of your heart? See, you can be a garbage inspector and yet be deaf, dumb, and blind to the enormity and magnitude of your own mess. And so he says, judgment starts with yourself. It would be easy to see the faults of others and not see the failures in your own life. Now, I want you to imagine here, if you were there at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus gives this illustration. I mean, this is hilarious, and I want to show it to you for a moment. Imagine you're going to the doctor, and the ophthalmologist comes in. You have something in your eye, and the ophthalmologist comes in, and he walks in and says, hey, so you got an issue with your eye. I'm here to help you. I want you to lay back, and I'm just going to take a little laser. I'm going to take that cataract off. I'm going to take that... I'm going to take that right off. Now, I don't know about you, but if a doctor, an ophthalmologist, walked into the room with this thing hanging out of his eye, I'm gone. I would rather go blind than have a doctor. <laughs> I'm probably going to go blind anyway. Right? Think about it. I mean, he's, it's gonna, it, it, this guy's not going to be able to do the job. So Jesus says, listen. You see the speck in your brother's eye, right? It's there. We all see it. You can look at my life and see specks. I can look at your life and see specks. We see specks in each other's eyes. But Jesus says, before we can become a surgeon, we got to become a logger. Before we can do surgery, we got to cut off the log that's in our own eye, where there's hypocrisy, where there's failures when we're seeing the faults of others. The question he's getting at is not do we judge, it's do we judge correctly? 
Do we take a position of pride or do we take a position of humility? Do we make blind assumptions or do we speak clear truths? And so he says, to be a surgeon, you got to be a logger first. By the way, I think there's something beautiful about this because the beauty of judgment is it's twofold. When I'm going to judge somebody else, I then inspect my own heart in that moment. See, judging is so important. We all judge. We have to judge. But judgment, godly, in godly, a godly sense, in the godly way, starts with me. I judge myself, and as I judge myself, I'm able to get rid of the impurities in myself so that I can help a brother and sister who has a need. See, there's a beauty in judging because now I judge in the way that please, pleases and honors God and builds the person up, and that leads to point three. Kingdom correction seeks to build up, not tear down. Kingdom correction seeks to build up, not tear down. Now, when we talk about confrontation, most of us here, probably when we think of confrontation, want nothing to do with it. In fact, we would rather have surgery than have to confront somebody. There are others of us in the room, you love confrontation. In fact, you're right now sniffing out people that aren't paying attention. You're sniffing them out. And you're finding the person that's in sin, you're going to go right to them, you got a plan, you love confrontation, you just love creating that, right? And some of you, they're on that side of the spectrum. I want you to see something here. This is absolutely powerful, don't miss this. Notice verse 3. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? The word see there is the word blepo, it's to see, to notice, to pay attention. All of us here see specks in each other's eye, we can't deny that. If you're not seeing a speck in a brother or sister's eye, then you're not living life. You're hiding in your house. We all have these specks. But watch what he says. Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice the word see clearly. It's the word dia blepo. So he takes blepo, and he adds the prefix dia, so that you can see clearly you can see abundantly you can see very intently as to what you have to do to take the speck out of your brother's eye do you notice jesus is not commanding us to retreat from the truth he's not commanding us to be fearful of judgment he's telling us to make sure that we judge appropriately that we are able to see clearly so that we can take the speck out of our brother's eye in fact if you want to really quote this passage rightly it's not do not judge, it's make sure you don't see a brother with a speck and you don't do anything about it. And when you do, start with yourself. We're called to actually judge. To be able to take the speck out of a brother's eye, we first start with ourselves, get rid of the log, so that we can build them up. The idea of this is not to tear them down, it's to build them up. By the way, this is all throughout the Bible, just so you know. We're called to judge. In fact, in John 7, 24, listen to this. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's a command. Do not judge by appearances, but make right judgment. Luke 17, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, turn and turns and says, I repent, you must forgive him. Notice, a brother sins, rebuke him. We are called to judge. Or one of my favorites is Galatians chapter 6. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore. The word restore there literally means to set a bone. You who are supposed to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So if we see someone struggling, we see somebody entangled, what do we do? 
we go and get the speck out. We, we go and rescue them. We go and make them free so they know they're free indeed in Christ. Now, now we read this, and for most of us, we think, well, we're not, I'm not spiritual enough, or no, I've got my own fears and faults. No, that's the point is I start with myself and I judge those things and get rid of them and now I come to the person and I say, I see a speck, I want to help you. I want to help you, but I don't want to tear you down. I'm not deteriorating you, I'm actually building you up. See, I'm not elevating a sin, I'm enhancing a person. That's what judgment does. Good godly judgment doesn't just elevate a sin. Good godly judgment takes a person and says, let me get the speck out so we together can go on this journey toward Christ-likeness toward gospel living. That leads to the fourth. And I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't end this right there. He, he makes this concluding statement, and it's this. Number four, consider how godly evaluation will be received. After warning us not to be judgmental, Jesus then describes to us how we ought to discern, how we ought to have discernment. Notice it. He says, verse six, do not give dogs what is holy, now, you and I, we think of dogs as pets, cuddly pets. But in many places in the world, in the first century of that day, dogs were not pets. Dogs were scavengers. In fact, this is true in Latin America. This is true in Asia. Dogs today are not in homes. They're outside on the streets. And they're dirty. They're filthy. They're looking anywhere they can to eat. And so in the, according to the law, if a dog ate a dead carcass, which a scavenger would do, the Jews weren't even allowed to touch them. So they were considered an unclean animal. Not more unclean than cats are, I'll just tell you that. They're the ultimate unclean animal. But dogs were as well in the, in the first century. I say that for the cat lovers out there because it's a love that I have for you. For your cats, I mean. Right, so dogs were scavengers. So, so what he says, you don't give holy bread, you don't give a holy thing to a dog, they're scavengers, they're unclean. And then he says, you don't cast pearls to swine, to pigs. Right, pigs were dirty. In fact, Jews didn't touch pigs. The Gentiles had pigs. Pigs were looked at as the most unclean animal in the Jewish system. And, and, and so they would never have pigs there. And so you would never cast anything to pigs. They didn't have pigs. And he certainly wouldn't cast pearls, a precious pearl. By the way, uh, the Greek word for pearl, this is probably more fitting today, is the word margarita. It's true. You would never give a margarita to a pig. That's literally the Dave Vance translation. Never give a margarita to a pig. Why? Because a pig isn't going to appreciate the value of the margarita. That's the point. The pig's just going to slop it around. It's going to be mixed in everything else. It's not going to care. So what is Jesus getting at? By the way, the word pearl is used in Jesus' description of the kingdom of God over and over again. It's a pearl of great price. It's a pearl in the field. It, over and over again, he uses this idea of a pearl being the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. What is Jesus getting at? There are times when we go to judge someone, we cut off the log from our own eye, we go to tell them we see a, a, we see a speck in their eye, and they're not going to receive it. Remember, he's talking about Pharisees here. They're not going to receive it. Their religiosity will not allow them to see the truth of the speck. So Jesus here says, they're dogs, they're pigs, they're trampling what is valuable, they're, they're tearing away what is right. In other words, he's saying, wipe your hands and just don't, don't worry about it. These people are going to reject the truth at times. 
What Jesus does is call for discernment. By the way, we see this image all through the scripture. First Corinthians chapter five, I wanna show you this. It says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother or sister in Christ if he is guilty of sexual morality, of greed, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or similar. This is someone caught in sin that continues to live in that sin. They're like a dog and pig. They're in a mess and they keep going back to the mess and you're trying to confront them. Paul says, don't even associate with them. He says, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? He says, listen, those who are not claiming Jesus, they're doing what you expect them to do. They don't know any better. It's not those inside the church, is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those on the outside, and so he says this, notice it. Purge the evil person from among you. That means if you're a follower of Christ, there is a standard of judgment that you and I have a judgment toward ourselves and a judgment toward other people, and we are called to judge. We're called to judge. We're commanded to judge. But we judge differently. We're called to rescue that person. We're called to help them get the speck out of their eye. And if they don't, then we wipe our hands of it. You know, I would dare say, and this is gonna be a bold statement, but I I think if you're a Christian and you're not willing to talk about the specks in eyes and the logs in eyes, if you... if you're a church, and there are many churches like this that never talk about the difficult things, it's all easy, it's all smooth, it's all blessing, it's all just, oh, oh peachy keen, and never talk about the difficult things, you're not a church. You're actually not a church. You're not a Christian. Why? Because there's a standard, and you and I, as we journey together, I want you to see my specs, and I want you to come say, Dave, I see a speck, I want to get it out for you. And hopefully you've taken care of your log first. And I trust you. And if I see a speck, hey, I see a speck, let's get it out. Why? Because we're in this journey together. All of us at times walk with limps, and we need somebody to carry us. We need somebody to walk with us. And there are other times we're walking in victory, and we're carrying somebody else. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. That's a reflection of Jesus, who came and went to the cross, walked to the grave to both show our inadequacy as humans, and yet show he is the answer as God. I want to give you four thoughts. So how do we do this? Four things as we end. Be cautious. Be cautious. When you judge someone, remember there are planks in your eyes. Be cautious. Secondly, be conscientious. Remember that you're going to go to this person and it's going to sting. Be conscientious of that. Realize the depth of that. That the first you've got to take the plank out of your own eye and then you're able to see the speck. But then you go to that brother and you say, I see a speck. I want to help you. Let's walk this journey together. By the way, you know what's great about this, this illustration Jesus gives? When I get rid of the log, I can go to a brother that I see a speck in and say, hey, I see that speck, but I want to let you know I just took a log out of my eye with God's help. And so let me walk with you as I get the speck out because I got something bigger I had to fry first. Thirdly, we want to be courageous. Notice here, we are not called not to judge. We're called not to condemn. We don't judge the way the culture does. We judge by telling the truth, but we don't cast the person off. No, we draw them in. We build them up. We teach them rightly. We make the word of God our lens, not our preference. It's so important. The Bible is not our preference. It's our lens by which we see the world. And so as we judge, we go with courage because the, the, word, the scripture helps us to then live rightly before Christ. And then lastly, we're comprehensive. What do I mean? The ultimate goal is restoration. It's not deterioration, it's restoration. In fact, you want to know whether you're judging somebody rightly or wrongly? 
what do you do after you tell them the truth? When you tell somebody the truth, and if you back away and say, well, good luck with that, you're probably judging someone incorrectly. But if you judge someone and say, hey, I'm here with you, I'm here for you, I'm here to help you, let's walk it together, you know what happens? You're judging appropriately. You're judging and, and walking beside them to help them be successful. Your hope is their restoration, not just the knowledge of their speck. And that is success. So, here is Jesus. He calls us to judge carefully. He calls us not to sell out on the truth. He commands it. We just don't do it like God. We don't, we don't condemn. We judge the benefit. Isn't it true that we have enough hypocrisy clothed in judgmentalism in our world today? Don't we have enough hypocrisy that clothes itself in being judgmental? We need people that are going to judge with the right heart, with the right motive. Humble people, saved by grace, transfixed by glory, amazed at God's love, who sees the needs of others clearly because they see their needs so profoundly. And it's then that we become the judges that God desires us to be. Would you stand with me as we pray? And we're going to end, we're going to sing a portion of this song as a declaration of our hope to be, to be children of God. You know, you want to know what freedom looks like? Freedom looks like when a brother or sister is freed from sin. And so if I see someone entangled, why would I not want to free them? And that's what judging does. We don't judge to condemn, we judge to build up. We judge to release the person so they realize who they are in Christ. Some of you, you may be here this morning and, and you don't know Christ. You, you, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Can I speak to you for a moment? I would much rather hear a judgment today, truth today that may hurt, than to one day in eternity stand before a God who will judge and then there not be a chance. I would much rather hear the truth today and make a decision today upon that truth than to one day stand before God where it says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And can I tell you, God has made a way of escape to that judgment in the person of Christ. God is so loving that he died on that cross and he rose again so that you're not, you don't have to be condemned. You don't have to be condemned. It says, for God sent out his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So you can know Christ. You can, you can not be condemned, but saved. Become a child of God. Let's sing this song. We are children of God. We belong to him.